0: Hey there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about the ever-evolving field of talent management and maybe how to reinvent yourself, in the event that you need to, then this is the episode for you, because my next guest has revolutionized the field of talent management. But before I introduce you to Michael Solomon, co-author of Game Changer, How to Be 10X in the Talent Economy, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays, and it's got unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Michael Solomon, the co founder of 10X Management, the world's first tech talent agency. 10X matches top contract technology experts, designers, and brand innovators with companies ranging from startups to the Fortune 500. And their customers have included American Express, HSBC, Google, Verizon, Yelp, and many more. Michael also leads, along with his longtime business partner, Rishon Bloomberg, the first-of-its-kind compensation negotiation service catering to senior tech talent called 10x Ascend. Ascend's mission is to help senior tech talent obtain the best compensation packages possible. And both Michael and Rishon also oversee another talent management and entertainment consulting company called Brick Wall Management, whose clients include multi-platinum and Grammy award-winning recording artists, songwriters, top record producers, and filmmakers. Again, Michael's new book is entitled Game Changer, How to Be 10X in the Talent Economy. We are going to be digging into that and a whole lot more. Michael, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go?
1: I am ready to go. I don't know if I'm ever caffeinated enough, but I'm definitely caffeinated enough.
0: Oh my God, then you are absolutely a man after my own heart, although I have to say, I do pull the plug on the caffeinating process like mid-afternoon. You just can't. For me, I I just can't have it in my system as we start heading towards the winding down hours because then I'm not going to sleep.
1: You said that perfectly. The winding down hours is different beverage.
0: That's exactly right. Different beverage. There is so much about your professional story, Michael, that I love because it truly embodies Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. And before we flash back to what you started out doing in the talent management business, kind of, sort of around the age of many of our young listeners, I thought maybe we could kick things off by getting into what you do now at 10X Management. I gave it a quick overview, but why don't you explain to us what 10X management is and who you're managing. Sure. I would love
1: to do that. So essentially our background, which we'll get to a little bit more in more depth as we talk, is managing musicians and directors in the entertainment industry. And what we did was as the music industry was disrupted, we thought, oh, what are we gonna what are we gonna do? And since technology was what disrupted it, I thought, well, that's a pretty good direction to go. And we basically built a talent agency just like Tom Cruise or... LeBron James have a talent agent. We are talent agents for very high-level freelance tech professionals. So companies come to us when they need to hire a data scientist or a software engineer, and we rent them out to them. But we're doing this really with the business model of earning a percentage of what the talent earns. And that was the real innovation of what we brought to the technology industry. There were a gazillion people and companies that were already sitting in between companies and tech talent, but they were all doing it with the company as their client or their customer. What we did was we said, wait a minute, the talent is the one that's in the short supply. Why don't we align ourselves with them? And that was the real innovation. And that has been what we've been doing for eight years at 10X now. And to you know answer in a little bit more of a granular way about how I spend my day, at this point, it's a lot of managing the team that we work with, because fortunately... I have all these smart, wonderful people around me who are making the machine go and grow. And I get to sort of nudge and give observations to them to for improvement throughout the process. And that includes leading a sales and marketing team, which is an interesting set of skills that I didn't acquire as a talent manager in music. And then there's putting out fires, which is a big part of what any, I think any leader has to do. And the better you are at leading, the fewer fires there are, but there are still going to be fires. And then the last part, which is probably my favorite, is dreaming about what is around the corner? What does the future look like? Where do we need to move this ship or
0: this boat? And what opportunities are on the horizon? Okay, I want to rewind just a teeny bit and get into or pick up on something that you mentioned because you said, just as Tom Cruise and LeBron James have representation, we were thinking, well, what about the like the programmers and the data scientists and, and those guys whose services are in demand? Why don't we represent them? But unlike LeBron James or Tom Cruise, who are out there very much in the public eye. How did you find these data scientists and programmers and engineers who aren't necessarily in movies or on NBA basketball courts?
1: Sure. That's a, a great question. Our origin story is that as we decided we wanted to try this, this industry out and see if this worked, We, as we've learned a lot more since then, we thought, what's the smallest experiment we can run to see if there's a business here? And so I networked for a while to find my way to a great software engineer through Musicians on Call, which is one of the nonprofits that I work with. I found a former Harvard student whose roommate was a musician and also a high-level software engineer. I should say former roommate. So I spoke to this guy, and the first thing that happened was because he had been a musician, he understood the concept of having a representative, having talent representation, so I didn't have to start from scratch. And he said, I don't really need help finding work, I have more work coming at me that I know what to do with, but the rest of what you're doing is exactly what I need, so let's try it. After, I don't know, two months, he said, this is ridiculously great, all my friends want in on this, I'd like to be your partner, and he became our third co-founder in the business. He's since exited to do other things, but ultimately what we started with was his friends and their friends, and then very early in our inception, the media decided that the story of the rock star managers managing the rock stars was really worth telling. And we started getting coverage in virtually every major business publication. And and we even had a seven-page feature in the New Yorker about what we were doing. So as that media got out there, we were flooded with talent who wanted to be represented by us. I mean, I think we have 5,000 people on a waiting list at this point. It might be up to 6,000. And these are people who are actually quite impressive when you look at their profiles. We just couldn't take on that many people at once. So we go to that wait list when we can. But that's that's really how they found us. And again, the reason was not because we were so brilliant. It was because we had a business model where all of these people were able to say, ah, finally somebody who can't really exploit me the way everybody else is trying to, they're on my side. And that was the big innovation.
0: So how have you helped these Amazing engineers and other tech talent Ascend. I mean, that's the name of the company that you just launched, you said, within the last year, 10X Ascend, to help them get the best compensation packages possible.
1: So for 10x management, the secret sauce of how we help them really varies from client to client. There are some people who come in and really want to talk strategy and want to know what new skills should I learn? How should I present myself? There's other people who come in and say, just give me a gig when you've got one. And then there's negotiating their deals. They're sorting out the paperwork, the contract. We do all the invoicing for them. So we're really taking the pain points out of the freelance process so that they can spend time doing what they do best. And this is, by the way, a big part of what talent representation does in other industries. Does it make sense for LeBron James to sit around and do his tax returns? Of course not. There's people to do that for him. And one of the things that we help our clients see is what's the best use of your time? You might make $400 an hour. Why are you not paying someone to clean your garage? And one of the things about technologists is they can do anything and they can learn how to do anything and they often need to be reminded just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. So they'll they'll go like study the law before they do a contract so they can do a great job administering the contract except they spent 15 hours learning about the law and they could have just paid a lawyer for two hours and had the same result.
0: I also love the way that you and Rayshawn adapted. I think this is what it sounds to me like this is what you did. Or Rishon, I'm sorry, I didn't need to say Rishon. It sounds to me like this is what you did. You may disagree, Michael, but when you said we wanted to just try it, to test it, that also sounds like a startup mentality. It's like the, the lean startup methodology right. that they use in Silicon Valley. Is that what you guys were thinking?
1: In truth, at that time, we really didn't know much about that kind of thinking. And now I feel like we've got, you know, over the past eight years, we've had a crash course and we advise startups now. And I do some mentoring at some of the startup schools boot camps So now I feel equipped to say absolutely. But at the time, it was just we had an idea, wanted to see if it was viable. And it was just sort of the logical way to like, let's try it with one person before we go incorporate and start doing business cards and logos and all of the things to start a business. Like, let's just do the smallest experiment we can to see if this is viable. Yeah.
0: As I mentioned in the introduction, some of your clients include marquee names like Amex, Google, Verizon, and Yelp. And when I saw that, I was actually really surprised because I was thinking, why are these big corporations coming to you for your services? I get why the smaller companies would be because they may not have a robust recruiting team. Why can't the big companies find their own tech rock stars? Many of
1: the big tech companies are doing just fine in that, but the reality of the overall industry is the level of people at the top, the people who are 10Xers, as we call them, and I should define that term, there are people who literally deliver 10 times the value of other people. It doesn't always mean that literally, but I can actually give you examples where we have seen that in practice. And these people at the top of the food chain, they're not a gazillion of them out there, and everybody needs them. So yes, the FANG companies, which is Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, and Apple, Yeah, I think I got all all the letters in there. Yes, they have wonderful recruiting. They're bringing in people all the time. They don't need as much help. Although sometimes they come to us because we have people ready to go. It's a factor of speed. You can come in the door on a Tuesday morning. If you know exactly what you want, we can show you a profile and we can have somebody spun up and working within days. We've done it within hours when there's a real emergency, but that is part of what people are coming to us for.
0: Got it. So since you've defined what it means to be 10X. Why don't we talk about your new book, Game Changer, how to be 10X in the talent economy. What is the talent economy, Michael? And what does it encompass so we've we've
1: seen a transition over time, and I, I don't want to go too far back and turn it into a history lesson, but we've had the industrial and the agricultural revolutions. We're now having the information age. And really, what we're seeing at this point is labor is going away. and this is this is a little bit of a controversial topic, but jobs are evaporating because of automation, because of AI there are going to be fewer and fewer jobs that machines can't do. And that means there's going to be fewer and fewer jobs that humans can do. And by the way, coronavirus has accelerated this trend tremendously, which is not great. And what you have left is your need, you still need people, right? But you need people who are incredible at what they do. And because you need to do more with less, everybody's looking for these 10Xers. And we, you know, when you think of the talent economy, you can also think of the knowledge economy. These are who are exceptional, these are people who are great. This is not the gig economy. The gig economy only speaks to sort of the duration of an engagement and the gig economy also, in my estimation, is really just a rest stop on the highway between the employed world we've had for the last hundred or so years and the future where there aren't gonna be jobs for everyone. But the knowledge workers and the knowledge economy that's going to keep going. The people with the most talent are going to always be in demand. The book really gets into two categories. There's how do you manage and attract people like this? What are they looking for? And then the second half of the book is how do you make yourself more 10X? How do you improve yourself quickly so that you can compete in this crazy competitive landscape?
0: I'd like us to focus on the second half of that. The part. Because I think that is probably where most of our listeners are. They're not yet managing certainly large numbers of people. And I think our listeners would really benefit, Michael, hearing about what you think it takes to be 10X and why. That's so important. I get the fact that the gig economy, in your estimation, is just a rest stop. I'm not as sold on the idea that you have to be 10x to make it in this economy right now. And I'd love to hear more. Oh, no, I agree that right now
1: you don't have to be, but the job roles are going to continue to tighten and tighten. And as that happens, the room that's left is going to be for the best performers. We're, we're not there yet. So if I misstated that at all, I'll just allow that to be a correction. I think the best way to approach this is to start out by saying, like, what do 10Xers have in common? And the reason we wrote the book is we've had these experiences now managing talent across multiple sectors. So just to explain what I mean by that. So we've managed musicians, we've managed music producers and music writers, we've managed directors, we've managed entrepreneurs, and we've managed all of these technologists. So it's really, we haven't done any sports at all, but we really have a breadth of experience from people like John Mayer, who's absolutely a 10Xer. And for that matter, we didn't manage him, but we worked very closely with Springsteen and his management, and they're all 10Xers. So we we sort of like looked first in the entertainment industry of what is this, and then when we got into the technology industry, it became clear. Here are the things that we've observed as being traits of 10xers. They are, and some of this is going to sound familiar and obvious, and it's not. And you, when you put it all together and you start to package it up and you say, "This is what I want to be," it's going to be very prescriptive for how to how to build yourself and better yourself. So one thing is they love problem solving. The bigger the heart of the problem, they are ready to dive in and go after it because they've solved problems, they know they can do it, and they know how good it feels when they do it, and they get addicted to that. And not to go out too far off on a tangent, but you know, when, when people use the word hacker, so many hackers don't break into things to steal them or vandalize them. They literally just want to see if they can get in the door. They're not going to do anything. They just want to know, like, am I good enough to get through the security? Sometimes those people even report how they got in. So problem solving is really big like being ambitious, wanting to take on big things. Personal mission becomes a much bigger thing than it ever was before. These people have choices. They want to work on things they care about, which might be a hard problem, and it also might be a societal issue that they really care about. They are lifelong learners. I don't know any of these people that aren't constantly learning new things. In the software world, they're learning new languages. I get emails regularly saying, I, you know, I just finished mastering this language. What should I do next? What's popular? What's coming? So they just constantly trying to better
0: themselves. And as part of that they And can also- I interrupt just for one second? When you say languages, Michael, are you talking about foreign languages or are you talking about coding languages?
1: Sorry. At that moment I was referring to software languages. Got they it. also actually as a group, and I don't want to generalize too much, but the software engineers we work with mostly speak multiple languages, most of them play instruments. Most of them do outdoor activities at like hiking and biking and, and snowboarding, skiing. They're very well-rounded people. And I think that's another thing that I've seen of 10Xers is they want to live a robust life. And they are focused on lifestyle as well as just work. So while I was referring to software languages, it could be anything else. I'm going to say at least a dozen times I've had a client say yeah, I'm actually picking up Spanish now or I'm picking up another language now as well as software languages. They're just interested in learning. And part of the interest in learning and part of what they understand is getting feedback. So they like, and I do not consider myself a 10Xer, but I believe one of the most valuable things for me is being open to and solicitous of feedback from everybody around me that I work with. And it's not easy, by the way, because sometimes you hear things that you didn't know. I mean, hopefully they're things you didn't know. And also sometimes they're painful and you didn't realize that you were doing something that may have been offensive to a person. But you're constantly getting this information and it's a really great way to improve. So these are some of the common things that we see among this group. And by the way, a lot of those traits are actually pretty common among millennials and Gen Z too. And I don't think there's an accident. I think that the 10Xers have sort of laid the blueprint for the younger generations. And so if that's where you want to go, if you want to be 10X, here's what we found that they have in common, which is a pretty good roadmap for how you advance. I'll add one more quality to that, which is they suffer no fools. 10Xers are not going to stick around because they have choices. If they're on a team with somebody who's destructive or or incompetent, and that person's going to be left on that team indefinitely, they're not going to stick around. It's too hard on them to have to deal with that. So there's a process in the book we describe called the manageability continuum. And on the one end, you've got the 10Xers who have the success impulse, where they are literally making every choice that moves them in the direction of their goals. That's part of what makes them a 10Xer. John Mayer was a great example of that. He was every choice he made just made him more successful and more of what he wanted, with almost no exceptions. The other end of the spectrum is called the sabotage impulse. And these are people who don't really have the tools to move down the line. And I'll explain why. These are the people, and everybody, whether it's in school or in your first job, you're going to encounter people who. Don't take responsibility for any mistakes. They run and hide when there's a mistake, or they do something that you know I've heard referred to as called a blame thrower, where in order to protect themselves, they start spreading the blame and pointing it at everyone else.
0: <laughs> run from those
1: people. Run. Run or get rid of them if they're on your team. But like literally, those people don't get better because the first thing you need to be able to get better is a realization that you have improvement to make. And if somebody gives you feedback and you deny that there was a mistake made or you deny that you have things that need to be worked on, you're not gonna work on them and therefore you're not gonna get any better. Mm. And 10Xers do not wanna be around people like that because it's just too much lost energy and time.
0: In your book, Michael, which I did read yesterday and found a number of things that were super interesting, you talk about how a 10Xer is equal parts High EQ, which is emotional intelligence, like curiosity, the ability to kind of suss out the mood of a room and a group and anticipate and and things like that, and high IQ. And I want to dig into that a little bit more because I'm not so sure I agree with the Second half of that, the high IQ piece. I'm I'm curious what you have to say you mean in terms of 10xers. Yeah, yeah. The fact that you have to have a high IQ, and maybe I should just lay out for you why I don't necessarily buy into that piece. And it may be that I am misunderstanding what you're talking about. And the reason that I say this may only be applicable to people in the tech industry. And maybe not writ large, because based on my own experience, and I'm not saying I'm a 10Xer, but somebody who's kind of zigged and zagged across four different industries and now based on the knowledge base that I have, having interviewed hundreds of people, professionals in dozens of different interviews that I've done on T4C, and of course, having read dozens and dozens of books about learning and how to level up and brain health and on and on. I really subscribe to what Harvard University psychologist Dr. Howard Gardner laid out in his research on IQs. I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Gardner. I'm not actually, but I'm okay. very interested. In yeah, that. so maybe for our young audience as well, Dr. Gardner about 40 years ago was the first one to kind of talk about a blame thrower. He was a flame thrower into the conventional thinking that an IQ test is the one measure of intelligence. And he said, no, it's far too limiting and doesn't do justice to all of the different types of intellects that exist in the world. And based on the research that he did, he developed a list of what has grown now to include Eight different types of IQs. So everything from the musical intelligence that obviously somebody like a John Mayer embodies, linguistic intelligence, word intelligence, spatial Mm -hmm. intelligence, kinesthetic intelligence. So we're not all smart in the same way. And so I'm not sure if your 10x Sort of definition is really more applicable in your the way you were thinking about it, maybe to people who are in the tech space. I'm not sure.
1: You know what? Well, you're, you've you've touched on the first thing that I would change, like literally the first thing I would change in the book if I if I were doing it again. So we use the term IQ here and EQ, not in the measurement of a test but an in intelligence. like we're, we're, What we mean is you need to have a high level of intelligence. What kind of intelligence we weren't trying to prescribe. So when we used high IQ, we should have said high intelligence rather than IQ because IQ sounds like a score. Mm-hmm. And that's not what I was getting at. But I think that to be 10X, and, this, and sort of I stand by the concept, even if I might've changed the words, you do need to have at the very least, high emotional intelligence, because I don't think you can succeed at almost anything really without some level of that and some other level of intelligence, of meaningful intelligence that it doesn't have to be measured on an IQ test. But I think this is true. To be the best performer in any industry, for the most part, you need to be smart in what whatever way that means for that industry. It doesn't mean you have to score high on an IQ test.
0: Got it. Okay, thank you so much for clarifying. That was definitely something that I was struggling with as I as I read the book. Thank
1: you for bringing that
0: up. That's great. Oh my great gosh. Evening. I'm I'm so glad to hear that I misunderstood. Let's flashback a little farther, Michael, because I think your story is so interesting just to hear how you got into the music management industry in the first place. So let's flashback to when you were in college. You graduated from Baruch College, and you tell a great story in the Espresso Shots interview. And our listeners should check out show notes to see if Michael's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. But you talk about how your dad gave you a gift of meeting with a career counselor who gave you a couple of different tests, I guess, to see where your attributes lay and to help you use that then in guiding you as to what you should study or major in when you were in college and you ended up majoring in marketing. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree, Michael, when you graduated?
1: I did not have a clue. And the reason that he was kind enough to do that was I didn't have a clue what to major in. I literally went to him and I was like I I, I don't know what to major in, what should I do? And he was the one who suggested this process, which was great. And I don't know how much those tests have changed in the ensuing 30 years that that it's almost exactly 30 years since since that happened but those tests were great because they they spit out the results that I would both like and be good at marketing and that's the box I checked and it was correct because I took all these marketing classes in college and they were like it was like someone was speaking my language it made perfect perfect sense to me so I feel very blessed about that and I imagine that those kinds of tests are still out there and readily available and probably better with 30 years of data and, and technology to to make them better. But it was hugely helpful. Mm-hmm. And I still didn't know what I, I still didn't know what I was gonna do, but I got very lucky because while in college I was dating a woman who, you know, I'm gonna add a little tragedy and a little triumph to the story, who was awesome and her mom was Bruce Springsteen's co-manager. And her mom is actually also one of the people who was interviewed in the book along with her partner John Landau. And as I was getting out of school all of a sudden barbara carr who's the woman i'm referring to said hey wanna go on tour with bruce and i was like ah uh, yeah <laughs> uh, and i think it was wanna go on tour with bruce to europe and i was like yes wait definitely. what year was this michael this would have been 92 yeah so
0: he was a huge he name was, already at that point yeah.
1: yes i mean and it's it's springsteen even even for the younger people he is still a, an iconic artist who's still plays stadiums around the world into his 70s. I mean, it's uh, he just turned 70, but it's, it, it's amazing. And getting to see this whole experience really shaped my life. So to sort of cut to the chase, the tragedy is my girlfriend, who I'm speaking of, her name is Kristen Carr, was diagnosed while we were together with a sarcoma, which is a rare kind of tumor. And after three years of battling it, succumbed to the disease and died. And that was obviously a very life-shaping experience being 23 and going through that. But to bring it back to the career, I see this relationship between these managers and this artist and this entire industry that exists around him and the, and, and the, the power and the access. And it's, it's alluring and it's amazing. And I was like, I want that. And it was just very obvious that, that's what I was going to pursue in the music industry. I didn't know if it was going to be right then or if it was going to be later. But I, I knew that that's what I wanted because I loved what I saw. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, nobody explained to me at the time, like, don't get confused. This isn't what a normal artist manager relationship looks like. This is the completely idealized perfect version that if Steven Spielberg were writing the movie, it looks, it looks like this. So I went into it and maybe thankfully not knowing that I was chasing
0: trying to be LeBron James rather than represent him but that ended up working out just fine. Well first of all I'm I'm so sorry for the pain that you experienced and obviously that Kristen's family experienced. I'm sure I have no doubt that it had a lifelong impact on who you are today. But I think that example is so incredible for a number of reasons, Michael. And it is the following. Shit happens in our life that you cannot plan. Sometimes it's really amazing. Like the fact that you happen to be dating a girl, your girlfriend. Her mom was Bruce Springsteen's manager and invited you after you graduated to go on his Europe tour. I mean, unbelievable. Unbelievable. And then other shit happens, like what we're all experiencing. And certainly those who graduated in 2020 are grappling with right now with the coronavirus and all of the millions of people who've lost their jobs as a result of it. And if you don't have grit, if you don't have the ability to persevere in those challenging times, it's a real handicap. And I think just going back to the good stuff that happened. I mean, look, when I graduated from college in the mid-80s, I was supposed to go into the Peace Corps. And then a random thing happened. A guy happened to be painting my parents' home that summer. And he said, oh, Andrea's going to Nepal. Does she know about the rapes that happened there? And this was back in the day before the internet, my friends. And I had to pick up the phone and I called the Peace Corps office. And I asked them if this was true. And they said, yes, we've had, there've been some cases in which Peace Corps women volunteers were raped in Nepal, but don't worry, we're going to teach you to recognize the signs and blah, 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 blah. And I said, thanks, but no thanks. And in August of 1985, I was SOL. I did not have a plan B, Michael. I did not know what I was going to do next. So these things happen. In our lives, I was also fired twice in my forties. All right. Shit happens. It ended up all of the above happened to be incredible gifts to me, which I talk about in other podcasts. We don't have to get it here. So let me ask you this, Michael. If you could share a time in your professional life, you talked about your personal life, the tragedy of losing your girlfriend, but in your professional life, when you really struggled, maybe you even failed. I don't know how close you came to going out of business or if that was even a threat before you started 10X Management and 10X Ascend, whatever that experience was, if you could share it and most importantly, how you persevered and if there was a lesson you learned in the process. Yeah, such
1: a good question. And and so much of Who we are comes out and how we deal with these challenging situations. And you just said it so eloquently. For me, I would say in the early 2000s, late 90s, when the music industry started to collapse because of technology, our contract with John Mayer ended. So that was a huge problem because, you know, we worked at any given time with between, I don't know, five and 10 acts. And even though the other acts were doing fine, he had grown to be probably 80 or 90% of our business. So when that relationship ended, there was a huge problem. And then you had the industry collapsing around the same time. And our friends at record companies and publishing companies are getting laid off. And the writing is on the wall that the music industry, I mean, we talk about looking at COVID, like we know life is not going to be the same for a while. That was what it felt like in the music industry, and it was the first industry to sort of go over the the internet cliff that everybody else followed, and it was terrifying. I mean, I I pride myself on being a really creative, innovative person, And, and I would walk in every day, and I'd be like, what if we do this? What if we do that? What if we do this? What if we do that? And it was an endless cycle for probably a year or two of feeling like the sky is falling, By the way, the leaders in the industry didn't even seem to notice that the sky was falling and wouldn't listen to anyone to to make changes that would prevent it from happening. And what we ended up with was a pretty scary place to be. We both had young kids and income was way down and the horizon was terrible. And lo and behold, we stumbled onto this idea. You've all heard that story at this point. And thank goodness we did. But I also know... I believe in my heart that if it hadn't been that, it would have been something else. And that whole uh, necessity is the mother of invention. It's true, provided you're a little bit of MacGyver or a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout, if you know what I mean by that. You've gotta be creative and you're gonna hit roadblocks. And you just like we talked about before, everybody makes mistakes. It's how you deal with them. It's how you overcome those obstacles. And when you see an obstacle in front of you, you, you gotta know whether you either need to go around it, under it, over it, through it, But you can't just stop. Life is going to keep coming at you. And the people who really figure this out are the ones that we all want to follow into battle. Those are the leaders. That was the proverbial battle, by the way, in case that was unclear.
0: I hope so. So what was the lesson that you took away from that prolonged period? I don't know how long the evolution was and the when you were coming in every day, what about this? What about that? To the Okay, let's try tech. Okay, let's test it. Let's try it out to the like when you started picking up steam. What did you take away from that experience?
1: I think it's grit and perseverance. I think they really just are the things that matter most of all. I mean, our first years in the music management game, we started the company, we didn't have any success, any real success for our first probably three or four years. And once it started to happen and young managers would ask us, what do you need to do? We would say it's a game of attrition. You need to survive long enough till good things can happen. And you always need to be iterating and growing and, and making more opportunity for yourself. But like, don't, it, don't think it's going to happen overnight just because you want it to. And when we hit this rough patch, that's essentially what we did was just let's keep coming up with ideas. Let's keep trying things. Let's keep throwing things against the wall. And something will stick if we keep trying. And that's true, you know. Like you, there's a gazillion quotes about problems. I think there's an Einstein quote that talks about having done something 99 times and not figured it out. He's like, I haven't failed. I just know 99 ways that don't work. Yep. And that mentality is what separates good from great, and it, what separates those who are going to be really successful from those who are going to work for those who are really successful.
0: Love that, and. It reminds me very much of an interview I did with an incredible guy. His name is Dov Baron, And he was the first person to introduce me to this quote that's been attributed to Joseph Campbell. And I know that there's a little bit of controversy around whether or not Campbell said this, but I love the quote. I don't care who said it. And it's, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. And what that is supposed to mean is that when you're afraid and when you're really outside of your comfort zone, that's exactly where you need to be Mm -hmm. because that is where you will level up the most. And that is why I said when I was fired twice in my 40s, the first time I was 43, CNN didn't renew my contract after I'd been there for 14 years. It totally sucked, but it gave me the opportunity to reinvent myself. And then when I was fired from that first job that I had, (laughs) I was trying to reinvent myself. It was like, oh my God, I have to do this all over again. But it pushed me further. And yes, it's scary going into industries that you're not familiar with and having to drink from the proverbial fire hose and spending your weekends and your nights like reading and learning and trying to absorb huge amounts of information. But I wouldn't be where I am right now doing what I'm doing right now, which I love, if that hadn't happened.
1: I could not agree more. The other quote that your quote made me think of is the, I guess it's a Michael Jordan quote, you miss a thousand percent of the shots you don't take. By not going into the cave, you just whatever's in there, you're not going to get it. Like, and I love that idea. And I love the knowledge that every time you push yourself and you go through an experience, you come out the other side, better, stronger, wiser, and more equipped for the world. And the question, I, I did this with an employee recently who was trying to overcome some limiting beliefs. I said, tell me about the things in your life that you're really proud of. You can pick anything you want. It doesn't matter. And I knew when I asked the question that every single one of them were going to involve this person having done something really difficult. And sure enough, the answer she or he gave were something difficult. And we all look back. Everybody can do this exercise. If you look back at your life, if you think about the things that you value, the experiences that you value the most that are most highly treasured other than some sort of familial warmth, friendship or romantic warmth. I think surely you're going to pull things that were, I put on that event in 30 days, even though everybody said it couldn't be done. It's going to be the things that people thought were impossible or that you thought were impossible and you made them happen anyway.
0: A hundred percent, which is why I truly believe for our young listeners that if they put their heads down, put out positive energy and a can-do attitude, how they persevered through the coronavirus To land a job that they really enjoy, may even love, is going to be the story that they're telling their kids one day. Final question, Michael. If you could go back to Baruch and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Take risks at a higher rate than
1: I did, sell fast, discern what matters from what doesn't. This is something that I'm only realizing now is a strength that I have that I never quite realized. I think some of it's driven by laziness because I don't want to do a lot. So I'm very careful about picking what I need to do and I don't get all the extraneous details. And just, I think the biggest thing, and the experience with Kristen sort of taught me that life is, is temporary and you really need to make most of your time on the planet, which creates a, a very strong and powerful sort of personal mission that comes out of that and, and a lot of gravitas. And I think the flip side of it that maybe I lost at that moment is most of the things, and we you know we talked about this, that go good or go bad, like they go by mm. and, and it will pass. So take everything with a little bit more of a grain of salt than you did along the way because it generally works out okay in the end. And if it really, really, really doesn't work out okay, it's probably the end anyway.
0: Yeah, in that blog post that I made on LinkedIn this week, I shared, and this was part of why I think determination is the jet fuel to propel you through your career. Why It's one of the most important soft skills qualities that you can try to embody. I shared A story from when I was 19 and my dad and I were training to run the Marine Corps Marathon in DC, and we were running hills near our house. And he told me, he's like, Andrea, life is like running up a big hill or a big mountain. Like, there are going to be times when it's like painful and it hurts. And you're not sure you're going to make it to the top, but you just got to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And then you're going to get to the top. And suddenly, life is going to be kind of easy. You may be running on flat ground. You may even get to run downhill. And it feels like, oh my God, it's amazing. But to Michael's point, life is a series of running up and downhills. We are going to get up. The coronavirus mountain. We are absolutely going to get up it. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Michael is the co author of Game Changer, How to Be 10X in the Talent Economy. And if you want to learn how to break into this new world of talent writ large management, please check out the show notes for this episode to see if Michael's Espresso Shots interview has already dropped. Michael, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. I learned so much from listening to you, and this was just such a wonderful experience. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I have to say, I learned so much as well. You brought
1: up great points and introduced new ideas, and you actually brought me to my first learn about the book and something we didn't make clear enough, which I'm glad to know about. And I'm trying to approach that with curiosity and eagerness for the opportunity to do better next time.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live.